I am Emerson, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. I bring all of you all greetings from the AAs, Alanons, and Alateens from the Rono Valley. And I want to thank the committee for inviting me here. This bluestone has been one of the highlights of my life uh, because I've always wanted to come here. I think those of us who God has given the opportunity to travel around the country uh, sharing, they have places that they want to go. We know different from anybody else. I remember the first time that I went to Blackstone. That was a tradition that I wanted to experience. And then I was invited to Founders Day. And then I said, it's one other place that I'd just love to go. And that's Bluestone. Because I've heard so many people talk about the feelings that they got when they came here. So I want to thank the committee. I guess I might say I've reached the mountaintop. I want to thank Grace and Al. They've been perfect hosts. They really were spoiled a dude the way they fed me tonight. I went back down the sponge up and get ready, and I got sleepy. You know, I warned them, but thank goodness I made it. <laughs> but they have been a perfect host. And I appreciate that you all getting me off the hook this week. I, I, I needed to be here, and I needed to be at a place like this. Last week, my wife and I was in Detroit sharing at a big, big affair, AA, Al-Anon. And then all this week, I've been out on the campaign trail dealing with earth people. You all know what I mean? Politicians, have nothing against them, but you know those earth people. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have no principles to live by. and <laughs> uh, uh, You get mixed up with them for six or seven days straight. You are ready for bluestone. <laughs> now, when I came down that mountain, and Al had warned me to put my car in low gear, and I noticed that the farther I got down that mountain, the narrower the road got. <laughs> But at first it concerned me, and then when I got down to the bottom, I was so happy. It was two cars right behind me. And you know, a lot of times, even 18 and a half years in this fabulous program, I still have some stinky thinking. And when I park my car, I'd say I would just like to put somebody out there with a, a West Virginia shotgun. And if anybody starts down that road that resembles a union person or a politician, boom, they should let him have it. <laughs> so I'm just going to enjoy it here these few days. And, and uh, my cabin is warm and I'm comfortable. And I'm, I'm able just to meditate and just have a ball. You know, 
18 and a half years ago when I came to this program, I was a pretty sick dude. I wasn't only an alcoholic. I had some other problems, and I like to call them uh, poor-o-me-isms. And you know, I believe those poor-o-me-isms was just as bad or worse than my alcoholism because I'm telling you they have to keep me drunk and away from this program for years. I want to share a couple of those poor-o-me-isms with you. Maybe some of you all can identify with one of them. One of my favorite poor-o-me-isms was the fact that I was born in this world a little bastard child. You know, I can laugh about that now, but when I was a young man in school, I didn't think it was nothing worse on this earth than to be brought in this world a little bastard child. And I was angry with my mother, and I was angry with the dude that she went out with to help get me. And I carried those resentments with me all through my young life. You know, being a bastard ain't so bad. I found that out since I've been in this program. <laughs> because, you know, as I travel around this country, I find out there's a whole lot of them running around out there. But I got a resentment, and I might as well get it out of my system right now. I got a resentment against you white people. It's so easy for y'all to be bastards. Now, let, let me explain. You see, because all of y'all look basically the same. But you know, down in North Carolina, where I was born in Greensboro, and you know we are very truthful in this program. It was ten children and I was the baby. I had two brothers that looked like Indians. They had long hair, straight, and had olive skin. I had a sister that looked like a Chinaman. She had squinchy eyes, and she even walked like a Chinaman. And then we had a set of twins that looked like those Arabs over there. And you see, Mama would get all of us together, and I was a baby, and, and I was a little black one. And she would get all of us together, and she would parade us up and down the street to the grocery store, and everybody in Greensboro, North Carolina, knew that something wrong was going on down Lula Gilmer's house. <laughs> so you see, that makes it tough. But that's what I had to live with, and the resentments came. I guess my second told me uh, ism thing came from the fact that I was born black. You know, 67 years ago, down in North Carolina, Greensboro, 
it wasn't popular to be born black. Especially if you was a loudmouth black like I was. You see, the sheriff and his deputies soon let old M. Gilman know that my kind wasn't appreciated. And they made it really rough for me. But you know, since I got sober and came to this fabulous program, I find that being black ain't so bad. A few years ago, I started to, to get sober, and I, I would go from city to city, and I would see the black kids holding up their hands, and they would say, black is beautiful. And you know, I thought maybe one time my hearing was getting bad. So when I would hear them say that, I would get a little closer to make sure that I was hearing the right thing. And they kept saying, black is beautiful. And I said, something wrong with those kids. They must be crazy. You know, all the heck that I've been catching because I'm black and they telling me something about black is beautiful. So one day I decided to get undressed take off all my clothes, and I went and got in front of the mirror and to check this blackness out. And you know one thing, it didn't take long for me to agree to them, with them, that black was beautiful. <laughs> so since that time, I haven't washed my face very many times because I want to leave it like it is. <laughs> it's an asset. But the beautiful thing about these defects, these resentments, I came to this program and I find out that you all could care less. And I found this everywhere I've gone. Whether I was black, whether I was a bastard, the only requirement for old M. Gilmer to belong to this fabulous program is a desire to stop drinking. And I've been made comfortable everywhere I've gone. So all those years I wasted, worrying, drinking, angry about something that I didn't need to do. But you know, I look back, and this power, this higher power that I found in this program gave me plenty of warning that alcohol was no good for me. He gave me so many warnings, but I did not heed his warning. I remember the first drink that I took down in North Carolina. I was in high school. I had a brother that used to work up at the Chevrolet place there in Greensboro. And this guy... For four or five days, four days a week, he was quiet, he worked hard. But on the Friday, something happened to this dude. He would come home and he would do things that he ordinarily wouldn't do. He would get in fights down the street. Sometimes he would get put in jail. And he'd come home and he would argue with my mama. I heard him upstairs one Friday tell mama 
Lula, here's two dollars. That's all you're going to get. Now, you can take it or leave it. Now, I wondered what gave him the guts to talk to Mama like that. You see, Lula weighed 280 pounds, and she would hurt you. And I knew that this dude must be taking something or shooting up or doing something to talk to Mama like that. So I decided that the next Friday, he can't come home. I was going to check it out. And let's see what miracle thing that he was using that give him that guts. Never we'll forget he brought a brown paper bag and set it under the house and went up to take his bath, get the grease off him. And I went under there, and in that bag I saw my first half a gallon of North Carolina moonshine. They said sometime that liquor would run 180, sometime 190, 200 proof. And I remember that this bottle, this jug of half a gallon mason jar had, had beads on top. And I decided to take a little drink of that. And I did. And I remember the warm glow, the warm sensation that corn liquor gave old M. Gill. I started to crawl back out from under that house, and I, I, I decided to go back and take another. <laughs> you see, I believe I was an instant alcoholic. That was what I'd been looking for. And I remember when I went out and stood up, I felt like I was 10 feet tall. I felt like that I wasn't poor no more. Blackness didn't bother me. Being a bastard didn't bother me. I felt like I could out-talk, out-dance, out-romance anybody. That's what alcohol did for me. I was a kind of shy person. All that shyness, I remember, disappeared. And I believe I decided right then and there, if I can get some of this miracle drug on a daily basis, my problems would be over. It wasn't many days after that that I didn't have something to drink with alcohol in it for many, many days and years. But I remember one Friday night, we went to Charlotte, North Carolina to play a football game. You see, I was a good athlete. Mama raised some big boys, and we were all strong. And I was fast as grease lightning. I could move a football. And I remember we went to Charlotte to play a football game. We had won 10 straights, and I think they had won about nine straights, and we were going to play to see who was going to play Durham in the East for the state championship. And that Friday night, it was cold like it is out there. Cold was November. And I thought about how important that football game was. And then I thought about my miracle drug. 
You know, if I was a star football player, if I could just get a little of that miracle drug, I would be a holy terror down there on that football field. I made a deal with the water boy. His name was Pee Wee. You see, I weighed 220 pounds, and Pee Wee weighed 98. And Pee Wee would do almost anything old M asked him to do. So I told Pee Wee, look, before we go on that bus, I'm going to give you a little bottle in a towel, and I want you to put it in the water bucket. And in case I need it, I'll wink at you, and you're to follow me to the little boy's room. We said, okay. Went on to Charlotte. The first quarter, that team was really eating us up alive. The score at halftime was six to nothing. And I remember what Coach Nixon was saying to us. I don't use that kind of language now. But every football player here can imagine <laughs> what was said in that the locker room. And I remember he was really down on old M. Gilmer for, because for three years I had been the star running back. And he said, M., you ain't taking your man out. You ain't running the patterns right. What's wrong with you, man? And I didn't say a word because I knew somewhere in the bottom of a water bucket was the solution to all our problems. And he got through and I winked at Pee Wee. And Pee Wee followed me to the little boy's room and gave me my miracle drug. And I drank half of that half a pint. And that warm glow, that warm sensation came on me again. That feeling of superiority And Pee Wee took that half a pint that remained of and started to put it back in that towel. And I said, hold it. Hold it, Pee Wee. I started to think of the importance of that game. If we lost that game, it was all over. And if that half a pint made me feel that good, drink the rest, fool and you're going to be a holy terror out there. And I drank the rest of that half a pint. And I remember trotting back out on that field. I was prancing like a stagnant. I was ran to go. Me and that liquor. Oh, in the third quarter, the opposing quarterback from Charlotte threw a pass. And me and my liquor went after him. <laughs> And I intercepted that pass, and I took off. Couldn't nobody touch me. I was looking good. I was weaving, and I was bobbing, and I was twisting, and I was turning. The crowd was roaring. And that when I got almost to the goal line, somebody said, No, Emerson, no, please. I was going the wrong damn way. <laughs> yes, that liquor had me in the wind. I remember I reversed that field and ran through all 21 of those playoffs and made a touchdown. 
And we went on to win that game 12 to nothing. And when I got back into Greensboro the next morning, it was a little caption down in the sports section said, M. Gilmer runs 185 yards for a touchdown. Any, any sane person, any rational thinking person would have stopped drinking right then and there. But not me. I wasn't about to give up this newfound miracle drug. But that was the story of my life, ladies and gentlemen. Everything that I can remember since that time, if I had alcohol in me, it turned out to be traumatic. My army service, terrible. I was so bad in the army, I believe if they hadn't discharged me, we'd have lost that war. <laughs> Everything I did was traumatic. And I remember coming to the Roanoke Valley where I now live, wondering what's wrong with him, Gilmar. You know, we didn't have treatment centers then like the youngsters have now. We didn't have captions in papers and newspapers and on TV concerning what was wrong with us. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. But I soon found out because I married the lovely girl that's here with me tonight. And when I think of the trauma that I carried that girl through and the kids, at the height of my alcoholism, even after 18 and a half years of sobriety, it causes me to tremble. And I used to wonder why she stayed with me. But then I got sober, and I know why. Because of this higher power who I unashamedly call God, knew perhaps that she was the only person on this earth that he could work through to get me to this fabulous program. You see, I was an honorary drunk. Alcohol made me mean. In my inventory, it came out that I was one of the biggest cowards in the state of Virginia if I didn't have a drink. But you give me a drink, I was dangerous. I was honorary. The things that I did to my family, I never share with a group like this unless I tell my lovely wife, honey, I love you, and I appreciate you staying with me during those critical times. You know, I have three miracles that I like to share now. Wherever I go to share my experience with other alcoholics, I've had many, many miracles to happen to me. But it's three that stands out in my memory. 
that was to change my life. Let me share my first miracle with you. And I call it my miracle of discovery. You know, I believe in every family where there's alcoholism, somebody has to reach out for help. And in my case, I know now that it had to be and to reach out because I was too sick to realize how sick I was. And I remember this gal reached out for help because she started to go away from home every Sunday evening at 3 o'clock. I could time her by the clock on City Hall. At 3 o'clock she would leave and approximately 6 o'clock she would return. At first, I really liked that arrangement. You see, because Anne was the type of wife that was kind of domineering, and, and she could mess up my drinking. See, me and the boys would be down in the basement. We didn't have but maybe a pint, and, and she would come in and, and start talking and talking this kind of junk to me. M why do you drink so much? Why are you spending the money when you could be buying shoes for the children? Why didn't you buy more groceries Friday with the money you spent? See, that messes up a man's drinking. But she would go away on Sunday evening at 3, and she would come back at 6. And that gave me three hours unobstructed drinking. Me and the boys could just get out in the basement and we could just puke and pee. We could just do anything we wanted to do. But you know, if you look at Anne quite well, Anne's nine years younger than me. Anne is better looking than me. And you see, we drunks don't stay drunk all the time. So here you have a beautiful wife that, that could probably could have any man she wanted in the Roanoke Valley. And at the peak of my alcoholism, I had only one thing in mind, and that was drinking. I had no time for sex. It, 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 it was stupid as far as I was concerned. So you got a beautiful wife, nine years younger than you. Sex is not a part of your life. And she's going away every Sunday, staying three hours. <laughs> yes, I was drunk, but I wasn't that drunk. <laughs> I started to think about this thing and Anne would get so pretty she would dress up that was during the time that you ladies 
was wearing uh, your dresses up around your knees. And Ann had the prettiest knees. And she would put on that old eye shadow. And she had her hair amber, reddish looking. And she would squirt that old evening in Africa or Paris or something like that. I know one thing, she's about to run me crazy. And she would get in that car and she'd wink her eye at me. And off she would go and stay three hours. I'm going to tell you all something. I got worried. I thought some dude out there was giving me a little help with my love affair. So I decided to follow her in one Sunday evening. Lo and behold, she went over to the VA Medical Center where I work. Now, we had 1,800 psychiatric patients. But I worked there long enough to know that those patients didn't stay crazy all the time. <laughs> they had little glimpses of sanity. They had elected me chief steward of the union. I had 18, uh, 18 shop stewards working under my supervision. And I gave them an assignment. And I said, now look, at 3 o'clock next Sunday, there's a white chivalry coming in this gate. And my wife, Ann, all of you all know her. I want you to find out where she goes and what she does. And no kidding, one of my better shop stewards came to me that following Monday to him and did come in that gate at 3 o'clock. She went over to building 10 and she went in the first floor. I said, go ahead, Kathy, and then what did she do? M, she went in a little door. And I said, what was behind the door, Kathy? He said, I don't know him. He said, but wait, wait. He said, on that door it said, L dash non. L non. I said, what is that, Kathy? He said, I don't know. I said, well, you better hurry up and find out. <laughs> so Kathy went one way and I, I went the other. We found the chaplain and he told us that L non was a group of people that came together to learn how to live and cope with a big honorary drunk like you. <laughs> oh, I remember the moss I figured moss I felt that day. I remember on the way home how terrible I felt. Here this girl was spending her Sunday evenings learning how to cope with a big honorary drunk like me. You know, Ann started to work. You might have an Al-Anon. I better tell you something about him. I think I owe it to you. Because in other words, you know, after you've been called old SOB for years, and all at once your wife starts calling you sweetie pie, and asking you how you want your hamburgers fixed, you see, you could have a heart attack. And that's what Ann was doing to me. 
You people at Al-Anon was teaching her the tricks of the trade. You know, most guys can get sober and get an Al-Anon and she'll go to meetings and, and she'll support him in his program. But I don't know what God did to me. He gave me a black belt, Al-Anon. <laughs> this gal worked some tricks on me that almost drove me crazy. If any of you gals still got a guy out there still drinking, listen to some of these tricks. You know, Ann started to bring literature home. Everywhere I looked in that house, there was some literature. Under the lamps, in my pockets. I got up one morning and started to put on my shoes, and there was some literature. <laughs> I went in the uh, cupboard to get me a little old bowl of cornflakes to last me until lunch at the medical center, and I fell some of that literature. And I remember one morning I went in the toilet, and I was sitting there tending to my own business. And I started to unroll the toilet paper. Some of that literature fell off. And I said, if this woman would go to that limp, I'm going to read this stuff this morning. And I remember, I read my first AA pamphlet. It was the 20 questions. I need not say more. I read those questions and I reread them. And I looked in the mirror and tears was running down my face. And I made this comment, my God, I must be one of those things. You see, I thought an alcoholic was the lowest down thing that God had ever put on this earth. We had an alcoholic program there at the center and I hated every one of those dudes. But here this when the questions were standing in, that he was an alcoholic, and I'd been an alcoholic for a long time. What a letdown. I remember coming out of that bathroom that morning, and there stood my Eleanor. She was full of smiles. She knew that I had read that pamphlet, and she propositioned me. She caught me in my weakest moment. And she promised and she propositioned me. She said, M, you know, I said I was going to leave you. But if you'll do what I ask you, if you'll grant me this request, I might reconsider. And she said, this evening I want you to come straight home. I've got two men I want you to see. And I said, honey, no problem. I was so glad that she wasn't going to leave. And she started out the door, and this is what she said to me. And don't drink. You see, it had been years since I had gone a day and hadn't had something to drink in my body. But I went to work that day determined that I was going to come home to the gal that I love and fulfill my promise. 
And I want to tell you tonight, that was one of the most hectic days I've ever spent in my life. It seemed like everybody at that medical center had a, a bottle or a six-pack of beer. And everybody offered me drinks. Some guys even got mad with me and said, you think you're too good to drink with me now. But I was determined to come home and fulfill that commitment. And on the way home that evening, something happened to me that made me know that I was in trouble. I'm only about 20 minutes away from the medical foundation. When I got halfway home, I started to press fire. Pain started to migrate up and down my esophagus, down into my stomach. It seemed like there were some little men down there, and it seemed like they had on golf shoes. It seemed like they were stomping and clawing. And I started to perspire and cry. And it seemed like a little voice came up out of my esophagus saying, Em, you better get a drink, fool. You're going to die. And I said to myself, no, I heck I will. I'm going home. I'm going home to my love. And I remember I came to a dead-end street where I could either turn right and go to my little ranch-style house. Or either I could turn left and go to my bootleg joint. And every alcoholic in here know which way I turn. Yes. I had to go to my joint because alcohol was ruling my life. And my life was unmanageable. Oh, I told my wife, I told my supervisor, I told my doctor. I told the ministers, I told the police, the judge, I drank alcohol because I like it. I can take it or leave it. But that day, I found out that I was powerless over alcohol. And alcohol had been my master for many, many years. But I made it home and in my living room sat two men and they told me about this fabulous program. At first I thought it was two big liars I ever heard. Here two white guys sitting in my living room with $4,500 suits on, a new Buick Riviera sitting in my driveway, and they was trying to tell old M. Gilmer that they too was alcoholic. I didn't believe them. But I listened to them. And they left and I told them, if I ever need you, I'll call you. And I told Ann, she was standing there with all smiles. Honey, those men enlightened me to what's wrong with me. I've been drinking the wrong brand. You know, a guy that makes as much money as I do and drink that old moonshine liquor ought to be sick. From now on, I'm going to drink Johnny Walker Red Scotch. That Eleanor looked at me and she smiled. She knew that any alcohol was going to do the same thing as that corn liquor did. But you all had taught her to play the game. And she played it well. Because two weeks later, I gave out a Johnny Walker's right scotch. I 
went out to my bootleg joint and got some corn liquor and mixed it, and I had my first case of DTs. The other day a guy told me, M, you go to hell. And I said, dear friend, don't tell me to go to hell. I've already been. I've had DTs. And if any of you have ever had DTs, that is a living hell. I remember after that case of DTs, I called Ann, and I asked her to call those men back. And they came back. And those two men and Ann, they took me to my first AA meeting at the Salem Presbyterian Church. The miracle of discovery. It was that night I discovered this fabulous program. I remember there was a dude up behind a roster similar to this, and he told how rotten his life was, what he did about it, and how nice and how sweet and how serene his life was then. I didn't hear much that night because I was afraid. And on the way home, I looked over at Ann and I said, Ann, are you sure we was at the right place? And she said, yes, Ann, that was A.A. But I said, Ann, did you notice anything about the, uh, those 50, uh, 60 people there? She said, no, Ann. What's wrong? And she was all smiles. Have you ever seen an Alan on the first night she get a drunk to a meeting? It's something beautiful to see. But I said, Ann, did you notice it was no more us there? And she said, no, I didn't pay it no mind. I said, well, Ann, every black dude I hang out with, they drank, they beat the wife, they pawned the clothes. You know, if I got to go to those meetings, why wasn't some of them there? And this lovely lady said, M, God, just haven't revealed this fabulous 12-step program to them. I remember that night I put her in the house and I said, look, honey, I'll be right back. She was in a good mood. And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was right. I didn't want to leave our decisions like this to a little old Alanon, you see. I wanted to talk to the smartest people in the Rondo Valley. And I went out to my bootleg joint. And I remember, I went in there and I, I hit that table and I said, hold it up, fellas. The captain's here. I just left up there at the White Presbyterian Church. And I told him about this dude up behind that roster. And what he said about how his life was, what he did about it, and how sweet it was then. And he called that AA. Did any of y'all know anything about it? Never will forget Rough House, one of my dear friends who's now dead from alcoholism. Spoke up and said, "Em, don't you go back up there no more. I said, why not, Rough House? He said, look, do what I tell you. Don't go back up there. Mm -hmm. He saw that I was getting angry, and I insisted that he tell me why. And he said, "Em, you might can have sickle cell anemia or some of those black folks' disease. But you can't be no alcoholic. Don't you know that alcoholism is a white man's disease? Well, that night I was so happy. 
I, I went home and I told Ann, I said, honey, wake up. Wake up. Roughhouse says that alcoholism is a white man's disease. And you can see I ain't white, honey. And I ain't got to go back to no more to more meetings. And that lady got angry. And those old funny looking eyes, they flashed. And she said, the heck with Roughhouse. We going back. And we did. I'm so glad that she made that decision. <laughs> because it wasn't long before I started hearing what you beautiful people were saying. Which brings me to my second miracle, a miracle of recovery. I started to comprehend what you were saying when you said to surrender to prayer. And one of the guys that came to my house the first time named Fred, he, 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 he made himself my sponsor. And he started to tell me about this fabulous program. He started to tell me about the steps and what they meant. He started to tell me about the principles that was to change my life. The weeks turned into months. The months turned into years. And I started to get well. Somewhere along the line, the taste of alcohol left my lips. And good things started to happen in my life. Yes, yes, yes. I'd start to get well. I remember the police in Salem, they started to wave at me. And started stopping putting me in jail. You know, I had a big German Shepherd dog, and, and my dog stopped trying to bite me. And those beautiful girls, three girls and one uh, handsome ex-Marine, they, they started to tell me that they loved me. The neighbors started to speak to me. And Ann never missed a day without showing some kind of affection. Gee, did I love it. I started to get raises on my job. My health started to improve. And my sponsor started to drill into my head what was going to keep me sober. Fred was a little dude but he was very dogmatic. I remember he told me one day, and he shook his finger. He said, M, you're going to get out of this program exactly what you put in it. And he started telling me about service work. He said, tomorrow night you'll stay here after everybody leaves, and you'll wash the ashtray. He started giving me little tasks like that around that group. I did it reluctantly, but he explained to me, that's the way you get into AA. He started telling me about service work, and they made me the GSR. 
They said, me to be the representative on the inner group. And I remember one night he gave me the key to the church. And he allowed me to go in and make coffee. I felt so important. My sobriety was working. My thinking started to change. I started to like myself. Everything was going sweet until one night. A blonde girl and her husband came up and they put their arms around me. And they said, M, we love you. I said, what did you say? M, we love you. Well, you know, it wasn't popular around there then for blonde girls to tell black guys that they love them. And I went out once again to talk to the smartest people in the Rolo Valley. And I told them about this situation. And one of my drunk buddies raised his head up from the table and set his glass down long enough to say, the Ku Klux Klan rides again. <laughs> you know, I went back to my sponsor and I told him about this. And he said, him, they just don't understand what kind of love you're talking about. And he explained to me the kind of love that we find in this fabulous program. An unconditional love. A love that has absolutely nothing to do with sex. A love that has nothing to do with race. A love that has nothing to do with social standing. But it's a love that we have in this fellowship that will make us go to any length to help each other stay sober. That's the kind of love that I've found everywhere I've ever gone. I remember I was in uh, Las Vegas and we went out near the Hoover Dam to an AA meeting. A bunch of Indians, I felt that love. I remember when I first went to Georgia, Speaking to Georgia State Convention, I found that love. Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, I found that same kind of love that glues us together. I feel that love here. I felt it here this evening when I got on my car. That brings me to my last final miracle the miracle of sobriety the miracle of the peace that we find once we begin to get sober and start to apply these principles in all our affairs I feel that peace tonight 
I feel that peace most of the time. You know, it's one time I thought, O.M., you get sober, everything is going to be rosy. Oh, you're going to drive new cars. Oh, your bills going to be paid. Your bank account's going to grow. Your Alanon's going to mine you. <laughs> but you know, I find out now that my life is a conglomeration of peaks and valleys, even in sobriety. Thank God I stay on the peaks most of the time. But dealing with earth people like I described to you when I first came behind this roster, you're going to have some valleys. But thank God we got the dues in sobriety to deal with them. I love page 449. Acceptance. I'm still working on that today. Accepting people, places, and things. And as long as I can do that, I'm happy most of the time. And I'm able to accept the way God works these things out for me. Yes, this life of sobriety made it possible for me to be here with you this weekend. This life of sobriety I go out on my patio some morning and I look at the sunrise and I like to look at the, right into that sun and say, come on, world. Come on with your heartaches. Come on with your tragedies. Go ahead, tax people. Raise my taxes. Go ahead, Medicare. Kill all the bills. Because it ain't nothing you can put on me today that me and God can't take care of. And I believe that. You know this life of sobriety sometimes get more than I can bear. Mama used to have a song that she used to sing down in the backyard when she was washing clothes on the old washboard. And I used to wonder why she sang that song over and over and over again. And it went like this, I come to the garden alone. What a do is still on the roses. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I'm his own. I didn't understand that later then, but I know what she's talking about now. What a feeling when you know that higher power is with you and that he's available when your sponsors are not there, when other people are not there. This higher power who I'm an unashamedly call God is with you to help you with every problem that you have or ever will have. What a peace that we find. 
And one of the greatest things that I find in this sobriety is carrying the message to the alcoholics who still suffer. Sometimes people ask, why do you travel all over? Why do you go to the jails? Why do you go to the prisons? Why do you go to the psych centers? They don't know what gratification we get. When we see a poor suffering alcoholic comes in disgusted, run down, disillusioned, and see him to come into this fabulous program and gain sobriety. You might think, I think, that carrying the message is getting up behind these rostrums. Huh? That probably plays a part. But I believe the greatest message we carry is the way we carry ourselves and these poor suffering alcoholics who are still out there in the highways and hedges that sees us and remember what we used to be like. I believe those people would rather see a sermon than to hear one any day. They would rather someone walk along beside them than merely show them the way. The eye is a better pupil. It's more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is always confusing. But example is always clear. I want to walk out there with those people that are still suffering from this insidious disease to see O.M. Gilmer and say if he can do it, I can too. That's the message that we carry in sobriety. That miracle that everyone under the sound of my voice have enjoyed for some length of time. If you only enjoyed it for a week, God bless you. If you enjoyed it for 20 years, God bless you. Because those weeks will turn into years if you hang out with the winners. I believe everyone under the sound of my voice, I believe that we are God's chosen people. I get criticized many, many times for making that statement, but that's all right. Because when I look out there and see these miracles, yes, the higher power had a hand in them all. I firmly believe that the light of God surrounds us. The love of God enfolds us. The power of God protects us. And the presence of God watches over us. Because wherever we are, God is, and all is well. I love you.